Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 6 of On the River of History. I'm your host, Joan Termel, historian in residence. Welcome to the Cenozoic Era. This is our geologic era, the one to which we're currently still a part of. The last 66 million years of the Earth's history, from the Great Extinction Event at the end of the Cretaceous period, encompasses the development of the modern world. Cenozoic, translated, means recent life. In essence, we'll be staying in the Cenozoic for the remainder of this podcast. Like the Mesozoic, the Cenozoic encompasses three periods, but because of the sheer number of important events that unfolded within this time, it is perhaps more feasible to progress through this time by epochs, those categories of time that make up periods. The first period of the Cenozoic is the Paleogene, 66 million to 23.03 million years ago, and the first epoch of that time is the Paleocene, which ended 56 million years ago. The Earth's continents were still slowly moving northward and outward, with India in particular going at a rapid pace towards Eurasia. It, along with Africa, South America, Antarctica, Sahul, made of Australia and New Guinea, and Zealandia, comprising what will become New Zealand and New Caledonia, were all disconnected and completely surrounded by ocean, while Eurasia and North America were connected by minor land bridges. The Atlantic Ocean was still relatively thin compared to today, being about half its current width, and the seas around Eurasia were rather shallow. The dreaded combination of environmental changes and the severe bolide impact that closed the Mesozoic era had proved to not be as dramatic as the end Permian extinction event, meaning that life only took a couple hundred thousand years to recover rather than a few million. The oceans and the land remained desolate places in many regions for a short time. Marine communities were lesser for the better, inhabited by mollusks, echinoderms, and other invertebrate groups that were smaller than their ancestors, a similar situation to what occurred after the Permian. For a brief while, crinoids bloomed, populating the shallow seas like opportunistic weeds. In fact, most of the marine life at the start of the Paleocene were essentially species that could sustain themselves on very little plankton, which themselves were still suffering from their losses. The chalk-forming coccolithophores would never again bloom as much as they had. There were many lineages of fishes that survived the Cretaceous extinction, and they too were not very common during this time. On land, the situation was not any better. There was a short burst in the number of ferns, which often happens after a major catastrophe as their spores are easier to disperse than seeds. They rely on the wind rather than animals to carry them to new places, which was difficult for seed plants as animal diversity was low. Granted, many lineages made it through the extinction, even the dinosaurs. Remember, one lineage of birds survived. Basically, though there were survivors among plants and animals, their numbers were low as great food webs were still recovering. But recover they soon did. Global temperatures rose as the last remnants of the Great Impact Winter ceased, and the world was soon able to support great swarms of living things again. The seas returned to similar numbers of diversity as the previous Cretaceous, though there was a notable lack of giant marine reptiles this time around. Corals and sponges dotted the sea floor, while mollusks and arthropods scurried and swam about between them. The land's ecosystems were abounding with the descendants of the surviving organisms, Flowering plants were now the dominant land plants on the earth, with the gymnosperms and ferns second in diversity. Many parts of the world were cloaked in forests of redwoods and cypress trees, but now they were sharing their spaces with broad-leaved angiosperms. For frame of reference, think of the flora as commonly found in Latin American rainforests. Colorful fruiting trees like citrus, papaya, avocado, and mango 
climbing plants and vines that support their weight on tree trunks and branches, and palm trees. Now picture these species growing in places like modern-day Wyoming, France, and China. Remarkable, right? For much of the Paleocene, the world was covered in tropical and subtropical forests, and these plants supported a growing number of animal species. From the moths emerged a new lineage, the butterflies, distinguished from their ancestors by their often clubbed antennae, as opposed to a moth's feather-like antennae, and their habit of folding their wings vertically from their bodies, while moths mostly fold them outwards behind them or to their sides. Young butterflies are called caterpillars, and these larvae were now content to attack the hordes of new flowering plants that were evolving. In response, many plants developed defense mechanisms to keep these caterpillars from fully destroying their leaves, including spines and sticky trapping fluids, and even toxins that repel would-be attackers. As an added bonus for the plants, some species of wasps began to hunt caterpillars and parasitize them, a step up from those species who preyed on beetle grubs during the Cretaceous. Our three living lineages of mammals survived into the Paleocene, alongside a few other groups that eventually would not make it to the present day. Mammals lasted through the extinction event because of two key factors. They were all small enough to seek shelter in inconspicuous places like burrows, and they had strong omnivorous diets that allowed them to live on any conceivable food source. Now that most of the predatory dinosaurs that feasted on them were gone, and that the niches of all these and all the other giant reptiles were left open, the mammals had a chance to take over the roles of major herbivores and carnivores in their ecosystems. However, they did not suddenly begin producing multi-ton species, and for the duration of the Paleocene, the largest the mammals got was as big as a sheep or a large dog. Despite this, there was a great diversity present, with more and more of the modern mammal groups establishing themselves. In the Cretaceous, the monotremes had a global range, while the marsupials and their relatives were confined to Asia. Marsupials had made it to North America during the Cretaceous, but their numbers were decimated following the Cretaceous extinction, and only a few tiny populations were left. It was in South America, where they survived in significant numbers, that they left their mark. Paleocene South America in particular was rampant with the ancestors of the opossums, who were mostly arboreal marsupials that fed on insects and leaves. That third great group of living mammals, the placentals, were to be the ones who dominated that continent, and indeed most of the others as well. Today, placental mammals are classified into four major groups, a scheme that was slowly uncovered by anatomical studies, and only later cemented by genetic testing. The xenarthrins, including sloths, anteaters, and armadillos, with slow metabolism and a peculiar arrangement in the bones of their hip and spine. The afrotheres, including elephants, sea cows, and a host of smaller groups, with a large number of vertebrae and the setting of their permanent teeth occurring later than most mammals. The Laurasiotheres, including bats, shrews, and the majority of carnivorous and hoofed mammals, primarily united by genetic traits, with no known anatomical similarities uncovered yet. And finally, Eurocontagliers, including rodents, rabbits, and primates, with particular adaptations in the skull. If some of these complex names sound familiar, they denote the place of origin for these placental groups. Afrotherians evolved on the African continent. Laurasia theres originated in ancient Laurasia before it split into North America and Eurasia. Xenarthra was a South American development, and Eurocontagliers appears to have risen somewhere in Eurasia. All the current evidence we have indicates that these groups were present at the start of the Paleocene. Among many of these placental mammal groups were a host of strange lineages that left no descendants, but it was these that were to become prominent predators and prey of the Paleocene mammals. The herbivores were represented by slow-moving, stocky-bodied animals that walked on the soles of their feet, 
These were browsers who cropped up plants with low crowned teeth, that is, teeth that is shortened and flattened. The best studies we have suggest that these animals were at least related to living hoof mammals or ungulates, but their feet were tipped with blunt claws rather than hooves. One group of these, the Taniodonts, shifted their diet to feast on hard roots and tubers by extending their front teeth into tusks and chisels. Hunting these were the Creodonts, a now extinct group with possible ties to living carnivorans, the group that includes the cats, dogs, weasels, and seals of today. Like the proto-ungulates, Creodonts moved on the soles of their feet, but they sported clawed toes and had rows of sharp, shearing teeth in their jaws. As far as their behaviors are concerned, they do not appear to have grabbed and pinned down their prey like living cats and bears do, but instead relied solely on their head and jaws to kill. From the Laurasia theorists stem the earliest carnivorans, who shared hunting grounds with creodonts, though they began as small, weasel-like animals with long, bushy tails. Also present were the two lines of living hoofed mammals, the perissodactyls, those with an odd number of toes, and the artiodactyls, those with an even number of toes. These related herbivores started out very different from each other, with the perissodactyls originating as long-bodied and long-tailed runners, having undifferentiated feet. This group would give rise to the horses, rhinos, and tapirs. Artiodactyls originated as petite animals with thin legs ending in cloven hooves, and they seem to have been able to hop as well as run. This group is known today by the cattle, deer, pigs, and camels, among others. In Eurocontagliers, the first rodents were squirrel-like animals, already having the continuously growing, chiseling, buck teeth that characterize the group today. These mammals would have foraged for nuts and seeds in the trees and along the undergrowth, where they encountered early tree shrews and colugos, two related lineages that feed on insects and leaves, respectively. Colugos in particular are fascinating in that they developed membranous structures along their bodies and became gliding mammals that live in trees. Like mammals, living birds flourished at the beginning of the Paleocene, and it was the lineage that these belonged to, the Neornithines, that were the only dinosaurs to escape the Mesozoic. Neornithine birds are characterized by fully toothless beaks, and it appears that they survived because they were originally ground-dwelling species, while most of the other bird groups inhabited trees, which would have been destroyed in the ensuing chaos. As forests returned to the world, birds experimented with new lifestyles, and some became arboreal. The Paleocene marks the evolution of the first waterfowl, gamefowl, and owls. By 62 million years ago, a group of birds had begun residing near seashores and adapted their wings into paddle-like structures. They had long bills for catching fish and webbed feet to help them propel through water. These were the first penguins, meaning that birds had already returned to the seas almost immediately after the Cretaceous. Some birds lost the ability of flight and relied on their strong and lengthy limbs to carry them around the ground. Among these birds were the ratites, who today include ostriches, emus, and rheas. But there was another group of birds with affinities to ducks and pheasants that grew to enormous sizes, the gastornithids. They had very large, thick beaks for cracking open hard fruits and snapping up twiggy plants. The true stars of the Paleocene were the other reptiles, like crocodilians, turtles, and lizards. Though the Cenozoic is often titled the Age of Mammals, for a brief time at its start, the largest and most significant members of the fauna were sauropsids. This point in time is beautifully illustrated by the Cherazon Formation in Colombia, where 60 to 58 million years ago there was an entire community of giant reptiles. Though crocodiles were abundant, they were not the dominant predators. They fell prey to two species, a turtle, Carbonemis, with an almost 6-foot shell, and the snake, Titanoboa, which spanned 42 feet in length and weighed over a ton. 
but faunas like this were not to last long, and as the Paleocene closed, it would be the mammals who would come to dominate the land. To continue this episode, please go to part two.